0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a look at the big news from the Max Air Show outside Moscow and key takeaways from General John Hyten's remarks today at the Emerging Technologies Institute of the National Defense Industrial Association. But first, joining us today is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, to hear what's on his mind and take a look at the week ahead. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, especially since you joined us on Friday. So thanks very much for making time for us again. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. FinContieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Uh, Byron, start us off. You just got off the Lockheed Martin earnings call. The stock, uh, as we tape this, is down 3%, um, given the company disclosed charges on a classified program. Uh, This is the biggest of the group, uh, as Ron Epstein discussed uh, uh, on our uh, business report last week, right? I mean, this is going to be a big earnings week. What did you hear from Lockheed? What does it tell us about what's to come and what are some thoughts you have in general?
1: Well, I think, look, there, there are always execution issues from time to time with defense contracting. It's the nature of the beast. I think the magnitude of the charge and then the fact that Lockheed Martin must have found other, you know, offsets to that charge because they really didn't change their full year guidance. That always gets people a little bit a little jumpy. Um, the their chairman and CEO, I think, had some pretty interesting comments about <clears throat> you know where they're trying to position the company. And I thought, you know one quotable quote was that the defense enterprise is at an inflection point uh, regarding you know the implications of great power competition, the competition with China. Um, and I, he really meant that not just industry, but also the DOD as well. So um, I think it, it's going to be an interesting read through for other contractors. You know, does it say something about the type of contracts that they're taking, uh, particularly in the classified world, which I think a lot of people have just thought everything's fine there. You know, we don't have to worry about anything. But, you know, these usually are complex development programs where people are pushing state of the art. and. When you see a charge like this, you know, some of the other stocks are reacting in sympathy uh, with that today. So, you know, I'm not expecting other charges from other companies, but it's just a reminder. It's, it's something that uh, uh, it's, it's a box check, I think, from time to time that people need to recall when they're thinking about these companies.
0: And, and how do you uh, what are your expectations earning wise from the group?
1: I've come into this, you know, I really wasn't expecting, you know, significant execution issues. Now, when a classified one comes up, you know, that (laughs) appropriately, I suppose, is a surprise. Um, You'll see pretty heavy uh, share repurchases. You know, I think Lockheed repurchased another 500 million in the quarter. Um, I expect the other companies to follow through with that. Lockheed showed 5% sales growth during the quarter, You know, kind of mid-singled sales growth, I think is going to be appropriate. And you know, as you would expect, uh, these managers talk fairly positively about how all their programs, uh, not just Lockheed today, but I expect the others will talk favorably about how they're positioned within the Department of Defense um, priorities and international priorities as well. The issue that I see is that no one's really kind of been able to make the case that they are doing something really different uh, among the largest contractors, at least to the degree that um, people think that one company has got substantially better sales growth prospects than the others than that's other peers. Again, smaller companies are a different kettle of fish, but for the US primes, you know, it, to me, it was going to be kind of a business as usual quarter. Uh, the Lockheed classified charge um, puts an asterisk by that.
0: Um, I want to talk about, is this going to be a big China-Taiwan week uh, across the piece? A lot of think tank events, as well as the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, obviously. And then uh, Defense Secretary Austin's comments to the International Institute for Strategic Studies, obviously a, a flagship organization. Let's talk a little bit more and follow up on our discussion uh, on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, decided $25 billion more for defense. That would bring the top line to $740 billion, uh $25 billion higher than the administration's request. You've been digging through uh, all 40 pages and also talking to your sources. What are what are some other takeaways from what we saw here and what you've been writing about? Right, I mean, what are some other insights you have?
1: I think, regretfully, um, you know, when these markups occur, there's a summary document that's put out, and it really—I don't know why—Congress um, can't put out. The, the budget details because it kind of leaves us hanging until the bill text comes out and then the report that it, that accompanies the bill to really kind of sort through and figure out, okay, you're, you're telling us what you did, but you know, sometimes there we don't know where the cuts were made. Um, we still don't know how this was spread over appropriations categories. Um, and you know, it's the language and the, and the smaller things that they matter in all this. And I think as we talked about on Friday, at least some of the verbiage suggests that this is really going to be peanut buttered around some of the major different accounts. I think, you know, at least 2.8 billion goes to military construction, the SAS bill, and um, and we'll see what happens to that one end because as you, you know, reverse some of these divestitures that DOD had, had planned for, um, that's going to not only entail higher operations costs in FY22, but there's a there's a tail to that too that's going to run through the rest of the FIDIP. So, um, it's, uh, I'm still waiting, you know, as we speak, it's not out yet. I expect, I expect we'll get the bill report language out and that'll, that'll give uh, a little bit more, you know, in-depth analysis to what SAS did. And then of course, you know, as you discussed on Friday, this is part of a process. It's been interesting that the defense stocks really did not, um, react strongly to, the Senate Armed Services News. And you could either argue that, well, maybe that had already been discounted, <clears throat> that it was in line with people's expectations or and or people recognize that this is going to be a, uh, a slog here for the budget. And we're really not going to know until we get final appropriations that could happen towards the end of this year. It, it may slip into next year, uh, but it's still kind of to be determined. It's a positive that SAS added that money uh, to the defense top line, but it, they're not the final word. The appropriators uh, are really kind of the watch item here. Uh,
0: it, it, exactly. So uh, one, one, one just talks, the other one really disposes and, and, and manages the purse. Uh, China, Taiwan, uh, take us away on what's on your mind on both of those, because obviously tensions are arising and Washington's attention now is laser focused on the Pacific.
1: Well, I wrote about it. You know, I do a Sunday night kind of look ahead, and uh, I picked up. Uh, there's a report that got put out by the by Project 2049. I thought it was an excellent report. Really, the the preface of the report just talked about some of the challenges that China would have um, in a military seizure of Taiwan, and specifically, you know, this is an age-old problem, right? It was it was one of the central problems the Allies faced in 1944 in northern France, which is you've got to secure ports um, to start the logistics flow uh, to your troops. And um, this report kind of discussed the same problem. But I think also just, again, you know, there's there a comment about how, how really daunting a challenge an invasion of Taiwan is uh, or would be for China to undertake. Um, and, and so you know there's a House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on uh, on kind of the cross straits issue um, on Wednesday. I think Atlanta Council is also addressing this discussion this this issue on Thursday. Um, there's been some other work that Jamestown Foundation had done, um, actually very interesting work on on. Uh, the, the the use of China um, Roro ships and commercial ferries where they'd actually put a stern ramp on these things that they could launch amphibious vehicles. So, you know, as you would expect China is, is keenly focused on, you know, what arguably is their biggest security issue uh, or, or what their military is most focused on which is if they get the green light to go, they've got to have credible plans on how to, to take Taiwan. But, um, But again, I I think these reports and maybe some of the events that come up, and quite frankly, the Secretary of Defense's visits with um, his counterparts in Vietnam, the Philippines, and then then you mentioned the Fullerton Lecture that he's going to give in Singapore on Tuesday. You know, that's another element of this that um, it's just, it's topical. You know, sometimes these things all converge in a given week. and, And so this is you know, besides earnings, going to be kind of a, a China-Taiwan week for me as well, too.
0: Exactly, before we've got at least a couple of quiet weeks as uh, Congress uh, goes goes out of session. Uh, they're so- never
1: quiet, Vago. They're never quiet.
0: <laughs> no, no they're, they're they're really not. Uh, Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on and hope you can join us on Friday as well. Thanks a lot, Vago. And joining us now is Sam Bendett, who is part of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses He is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and is one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, especially its unmanned systems. Sam, thanks very much for joining us again.
2: Thanks for having me again, Vago. MAX
0: is always a fascinating uh, show. As you know, uh, Sam, it's an opportunity for Russia to uh, showcase its new technologies and also to do some posturing as well as intimidation. Uh, The focus obviously has been on the new uh, export stealth fighter uh, that's been drawing mixed reviews from analysts, including our team that yesterday uh, didn't uh, think as much about it as as maybe uh, the guys in Moscow do. Talk to us about the new jet and what Russia hopes to accomplish with it.
2: So this is going to be an export oriented model. It was specifically built for export. This is a light one engine stealthy aircraft that Russia hopes will uh, be good competition for European and uh, Asian aircraft of the same type. And so it is roughly in the same category as the F-35 fighter jet. Uh, Russians are banking a lot on this new development. What's interesting is its price. Around $30 million was the amount that was actually floated at the expo as what this aircraft would cost. And that's well below much of the competition out there for similar aircraft. It's even below the cost of many Russian aircraft. And so the question that has to be asked now that the expo is over and all the noise has died down, how realistic is it for the Russian defense industry to actually maintain this low cost for export? Of course, another issue is the um, length of development of these aircraft. and So this was kind of a mock-up. So this was a very sophisticated mock-up. This wasn't an actual flying prototype. And so it takes a long time to develop these aircraft. It takes a long time to develop the electronic components. It takes a long time to uh, operate these um, aircraft, to test them, to evaluate them properly. Russians are... Pro- they're proposing a fairly ambitious timeline so that by the year 2027, these aircraft could potentially be delivered to foreign customers. And of course, they're showing as evidence that, yes, there was a lot of foreign interest, a lot of foreign delegations had a chance to sit in the cockpit of this of this aircraft. They were very excited about it. Uh, but again, it is the length of time to develop a lot of the key components for this aircraft that are going to be basically defining and really determining how far this aircraft can actually take off from this very sophisticated and very sexy model that was unveiled at MOX to the actual flying aircraft.
0: Um, I, I think it's going to be interesting because before we got started, we were talking about the SU-57 and that it's actually been in gestation for like almost two decades and it's only now being fielded, right? So, I mean, if you use right. that as an example, this this is going to take some time. And the other thing is, how reasonable is it, and I want to go to the unmanned platforms in a moment, but how reasonable is it? That it's going to be actually a viable competitor against the F-35, right? Because there's a tendency for guys to either be buying Russian or Soviet equipment, as it was in the Cold War, and is, has been the case after uh, the Cold War. And then there are countries that buy Western equipment, F-35s, uh, you know, Rafals, and, and anything else. I mean, how serious of a competitor against these jets is this new? Would this new Russian aircraft be, reasonably well- speaking?
2: I think the way to kind of determine that is to see how well its own sort of twin engine competitor, the uh, Su-57, will be doing in export capacity. Uh, Russians have a tendency to discuss its newly unveiled platforms, not just for the domestic consumption, not just for acquisition by the MOD, but also to kind of highlight almost in the same sentence that there's a lot of foreign interest, there's a lot of international Uh, attention, Uh, there are potential customers lining up somewhere to buy a a given platform. And so right now, it is Su-57 that is really the test of uh, how successful can Russian domestic aircraft industry be in trying to compete with the best and the brightest, if you will, and that is the United States and, and Western exports, and in some cases, even Asian exports like the aircraft from China. If Su-57 becomes a viable competitor downrange for some, of the, uh, for some of the aircraft on the global market, then Su-75, this Checkmate aircraft, may, again, um, have a chance. But it's all about the actual finished product. What was unveiled was not a flying prototype. It was a very, very sophisticated mock-up. Right. And so years go by before a successful prototype is fielded. There's a lot of testing and evaluation that takes place. Uh, what's interesting for the MOD, however, is the fact that it could actually fast track a lot of the new developments through Syria. Just recently, the MOD claimed that they actually tested over 300 different types of weapon systems and platforms in Syria. And so if Checkmate is eventually fielded as a flying prototype, A2 may actually go through the paces in Syria, which may actually speed up some of its own development as the MOD and um, and the aircraft manufacturer will try to figure out uh, s- some of the issues that have to be solved. Uh, this was the case with some of the unmanned systems that we discussed earlier in the years prior. This could be the case for Checkmate. But again, this is not a flying prototype. This is a very sophisticated and a successful public right. relations campaign that seeks to promote, and rightfully so, uh, Russian know-how in developing and a designing uh, state-of-the-art sophisticated aircraft.
0: Uh, and we should point out right the Iranians could buy these aircraft the North Koreans could buy these aircraft so they can still be a thorn in western sides uh by being distributed all around the world uh in in terms of a more novel and uh, sophisticated capability. While this airplane is going to be cheaper than Western airplanes at $30 million, it's still likely too rich, for example, for Iran or North Korea. But what are some other markets that Russia would be targeting this
2: toward? In fact, the promotional video for the aircraft actually featured pilots from India, from UAE, from, um, from Argentina and other nations. In other words, there are usual suspects that buy a lot of Russian military equipment, and they include India, Vietnam, they include UAE, they include Algeria. a handful of other countries that may potentially afford this aircraft. But again, a lot will depend whether the the aircraft price will be at around $30 million as advertised, or it will actually have to inch up because of of various requirements and um, unpredictable conditions in developing the aircraft.
0: We've got a little bit of time left. I want to get your sense on uh, some of the unmanned and other systems that were under display that got your attention.
2: So what's interesting about Checkmate itself is that uh, its developer actually stated that an unmanned version of Checkmate could also be fielded. And this is kind of the global trend that a lot of aircraft are going to be, or a lot of systems in in use today can be optionally manned or, or can be completely unmanned and autonomous. And so the Checkmate developer said that the Suhoi 75 aircraft can also be potentially unmanned and that Suhoi can actually carry its own UAV complement and can cooperate with Drones and UAVs that it carries itself, or uh, that it kind of leads in a, in a loyal a wingman configuration. And so, again, this is a global trend, and the Russians are following the trend and they're trying to design their aircraft and their unmanned systems for a mixed use environment where both uh, crude and uncrewed systems can function side by side. MiG aircraft, MiG Corporation, which is now, along with Sukhoi, is part of Rostec Enterprises, Russia's biggest. Um, defense industrial conglomerate unveiled a mock-up of a stealthy blended wing um, maritime aircraft that could uh, potentially be used in combat. What's interesting about that is MIG has been talking about unveiling a UAV lineup for years. I think first time they mentioned it was in 2017, 2018, and that hasn't happened yet. And so far what we see from MIG is a sophisticated model in plastic and wood that is actually displayed at a military expo. So it remains to be seen whether MiG Corporation can actually step up and actually deliver a working prototype of, um, of, of, a, of a combat UAV. Uh, there were two UAV helicopters that drew attention, um, the BAS-200 and the VRT-300. These are some of the largest and heaviest helicopters that the Russian defense industry is fielding. They were marketed both for the civilian and military applications, but also as a follow-up to the display of these UAVs, uh, Rostec and other enterprises are actually discussing developing a much heavier helicopter-type UAV that can carry up to a ton. And so, again, Russian defense industry is following the global trend in designing and actually developing multiple types of UAVs and autonomous systems that could potentially meet the needs, not just of the military, but also the civilian market.
0: Sam, thanks very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much, Vago. And joining us now is my good friend, Dr. Mark Lewis, the director of NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute. Mark, uh, thanks very much for joining us again.
3: Vago, thanks for having me as always.
0: Uh, It's an absolute pleasure. And I should point out that General Motors Defense is our uh, technology coverage uh, sponsor. Uh, You joined us for one of our deep dives uh, for our monthly technology report. But I wanted to have you on uh, because it was a great event today with uh, General uh, John Hayton, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. uh, Absolutely, as usual, hitting the ball uh, out of the park. Uh, Laser like focus on all the things that we need uh, to do. Uh, Unfortunately, he's only serving a two-year tour before he steps down this fall, uh, but still is being very action-packed, saying, hey, this country can move fast, look what we did with vaccines, but we need to be able to do that across the defense enterprise. What were some of the key things you heard uh, as a uh, leading technologist from him?
3: Well, uh, Vago, thanks. you know, I, I think I think you you nailed it exactly. You know, as part of our rollout event, we had we had, as you mentioned, we had the Vice Chairman, of the Joint Chiefs, John Hayton, a good friend. Uh, uh, I, I think one of the one of the great thought leaders right now in the Department of Defense, and he had a a, a number of comments. Um, he, look, he he pointed out that really we need to be focusing on on peer competitors, and 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 that's not a surprise, but of course it is a a change that came in with 2018 and National Defense Strategy. Um, uh, John emphasized General Heighton emphasized the importance of speed and acquisition, because clearly the Chinese and Russians as well are are moving very quickly. You know, they have some infrastructure advantages. Uh, Dictatorships can be can move very effectively when they have to. Orders come down from on high and and the nature responds as a as a as a democracy. We we, you know, very nature of our system. We tend to, uh, we, we, we have a more deliberative process, but yet he pointed out that in in, when, in, in moments of, in historical moments when the nation had to respond quickly, we did. You know, uh, uh, World War II, the Cold War, he emphasized that when he was a young officer and we were in the, the midst of the Cold War, we had a very focused mission. We had a peer competitor that we were, we were, we were concentrating on and everything we did was in the context of delivering capabilities in many cases through technology, to, to uh, participate in that competition with the Russians. And, and he kind of gave us a call to, to, to be thinking with that, that similar mindset. You know, we've, we've certainly had some distractions, uh, 9-11, the Middle East, we've, we've had some big successes there, but, but really getting us refocused onto China and Russia and realizing that we're once again in a, in a major competition, we're where the core of his comments.
0: Um, He uh, talked about uh, contested logistics uh, and saying, hey, we've got to do things totally differently, Um, contested communications, right? Um, What what I thought was fascinating was what he said is not just to be able to operate on mission command, right, for centralized uh, decision making, but uh, disaggregated execution, but that to create the cultural skills for somebody to just surface on a net, get all the right information while they can get it because they may have to get off that net again in order to survive. I thought that was a fascinating observation. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And, you know, you're, his comment about contested logistics, um, absolutely spot on. Point out, you know, the last time we we, we, we operated in a contested logistics environment uh, was probably World War II. And, and you know, think about operating through the, the Japanese island chains and having to take, uh, you know, island by island. So that was a great example of that he offered. And, we haven't had to face that scenario, and and now we once again are potentially facing that scenario. Um, as you mentioned, he talked about the importance of of information sharing, uh, emphasis on JADC2, the uh, uh, the Joint All Domain Command and Control um, uh, infrastructure that that the Department is highlighting. Um, you know, General Highten had some great comments also about the JROC process and what the JROC is supposed to do, and it was great having hearing those comments with with uh, a retired Congressman Mac Thornberry. Uh, in the room, sitting at the table, because he, of course, was instrumental in some of the legislation that's guided the way we do acquisition within the department. So having the, the, those two thought leaders in the room was 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 absolutely a highlight.
0: Um, you know, I mean, the the question, though, um, as you know, Mark, is right. The the folks from the Obama administration would say it was their national defense strategy that started framing the outlines of that great power competition. Right, 2018 drove it uh, yeah. forward, and now this is going to get. Uh, further uh, reinforced. One of the things that General Hayton was talking about was a mental change that was the most important. And he thinks that that's actually happening at a service chief's level. But from your standpoint, you until a couple of months ago were in uh, the Pentagon working it, how would you estimate the progress on the mental shift required? Right, I mean, change happens when people feel uh, sort of the, the wind on the back of their neck that makes yeah. them
3: sort of get very, very focused, or maybe the blade at the back of the neck. Yeah. Uh, to overstretch yeah, it. exactly. But, you know, we, we often like to say that when, when strategy meets culture, culture wins every time. And indeed, I, I talk a little bit about a report that we rolled out on the modernization quandary, which is how do you modernize? How do you bring these emerging technologies to bear? When you have all these constraints, you've got financial constraints, you've got process constraints, acquisition process, you've got uh, larger context, you've got uh, you've got uh, organizational constraints. You know, Capitol Hill gets gets a say in every decision that you make in the defense. Other parts of the executive branch. So, so to, how do you operate? And, and one, one of the one of the the realizations that we came when we we did a workshop on this this very issue, this modernization fundry, and the theme of how do you change culture kept coming up, and and. Yeah, yes. yes, uh, uh, the vice chairman certainly did talk about that change. I will tell you, I I, I kind of saw it firsthand. You know, we in the Pentagon we'd sometimes joke about the Iron Majors, the folks who are, you know, several levels down in the organization who what what whatever the political leadership is suggesting, they're gonna they're gonna stay the course as they see it. Um someone once explained to me that that in the view of, of some of the career folks, the politicals were just kind of the Christmas help. <laughs> they just kind of show up way in and then then head off. Um but 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 so sometimes it takes a while for those those major changes, those major shifts to kind of infuse themselves in the organization. But but I can tell you, I, I saw it in the time that I was in the building. Um, you know, my my one example I'd give you right off the bat is is kind of the prominence of research and engineering. You know, when when when, as you know, the acquisition technology logistics office was was divided into an acquisition sustainment research and engineering office originally under uh, the Honorable Alan Lord in Acquisition Sustainment, Mike Griffin, who I went to work for in, in r uh, Side note, we had Alan Lord in attendance as well at this event, it was great to have her there. Um, when that first started, you know, it was interesting because there were people in both organizations who kind of thought, yeah, this is just temporary. We'll just kind of weather the storm next administration. It'll all go back to the way we're used to. And, and then even at the time that I was in building, it seemed to just dawn on people like, no, 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 this is actually, we're gonna be moving forward. This is a new way we're gonna be operating. We're going to have, you know, this frankly, this new prominence for research and engineering, giving a separate seat at the table, and and you can almost see it eventually dawning, and everyone in, in the organization, that, yeah, no, this they, we're we're going to we're going to be following this mandate now, and and I, I think that's what that what General Hyten was certainly alluding to.
0: And uh, very briefly, we uh, in the thirty or so seconds we've got left, you guys have impaneled a, a, a board. Yes, long-running inside joke. Uh, you guys have impaneled uh, a new advisory board. Talk to us about the board. How you intend to expand it?
3: Ah, so uh, absolutely right. We've got an advisory board. Alan uh, Lord graciously uh, agreed to serve. Uh, Mac Thornberry. Um, we've got. Uh, 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 it we're being, it's being chaired by by uh, uh, Dick McCon who is uh, past uh, uh, president of, um, of, of uh, NDIA. And, um, and uh, uh, we also have Paul Madero, who's co-founder and general partner for Ameritech Capital. And uh, Arnold Panero, who's the current uh, chair of the NDIA board is also participating. Look, these are very senior folks with incredible experience. We've asked them to, to, to advise us, to give us guidance, um, to help shape the directions that we move in to kind of grade our homework when necessary. I'm a big fan of having of, of having you know, someone looking looking over your shoulder, uh, 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 course correcting if necessary, and then even suggesting paths forward. And uh, we're we're going to be looking to expand that board um, in in coming weeks and months um, to reflect you know the the broad nature of the defense industry, uh, uh, including you know uh, other other segments of the defense industry, and then other other individuals who bring some government experience as well. Mark
0: thanks very much for joining us. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Can't wait to have you back on again soon. Thanks a lot.
3: Vago, thank you so much. appreciate it.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.